Lord, we are so thankful to be here this weekend, thankful for the way that your word is um, spoken and sung and uh, resounds in our hearts. And Lord, we especially ask for you to pray out your spirit, pour out your spirit um, in this um, hour that we have together. Lord, help us to see how we can use this as a tool to help our patients reach you and uh, help us to see how glorious you are in pouring out your healing and uh, we, just, we just want to spend this time with you. So, Lord, I'm opening my mouth. I really want you to fill it with your words um, so that uh, you can be seen. In the name of Jesus, amen. So, our title is Painful Past, Medical Effects, and Eternal Opportunities. Um, it's really about the Adverse Childhood Experience Score. How many of you are familiar with the ACE study that was done from 95 to 97 by Vincent Folletti at Kaiser? Anybody familiar with that study? So I was actually working at Kaiser. I did my residency at Kaiser Family Practice from 1982 to 1985. And while I was there toward the end of the 80s um, and into the 90s, Vincent Folletti was running a very comprehensive uh, program for weight management. And some patients were losing up to 300 pounds in a year on this program. It was, it was a complicated program. They had dietitians and exercise and counseling groups and private counseling and uh, dance therapy, art therapy, all, all kinds of stuff. And it was a very successful program, but something uh, puzzled Dr. Folletti. And that was that he would have patients, his most successful patients, that would suddenly start gaining all their weight back faster than he thought physiologically possible. So this stumped him, and he went to the source to ask why, and he interviewed those patients that suddenly started gaining their weight back. And what he heard uh, were stories about childhood adverse experiences. So uh, he, I remember one that he told, it was a lady that had gone out dancing with her husband and somebody had cut in on them. And the person that cut in reminded her of someone who had uh, sexually abused her as a child. And then she immediately put on all this weight. What, what Dr. Felitti found out was that what we physicians perceive as the problem, the obesity, was actually the patient's perceived solution to vulnerability, susceptibility to assault. Um, the fat was a nice inner tube around the middle. It kept people at a distance. Uh, it made them feel safer. Um, same reason why people might smoke up a, a cloud of smoke so that people stayed further away from them. Um, anyway, he, he said, hmm, what we providers think is the problem is actually the patient's um, perceived solution. And they were using, especially carbs, uh, to push down the feelings that were coming up. Bereavement, shame, regret, guilt, uh, feelings from their childhood. I remember he told one story about a young man who had watched his brother crash a go-kart into a cement wall. And he had this trauma in the back of his childhood. And when some event happened at the end of his successful weight management program that reminded him, he immediately started eating, eating for comfort. So uh, Dr. Felitti said, let's, let's study this. And of course, Kaiser makes a beautiful place to study patients because they had all these charts they could follow for 20 plus years and see what these traumas in childhood, what these patients ended up having for medical effects 20 years down the line. So this is the quiz that they gave. There's some on the tables. If you don't have one, I can get you a copy of it. The quiz that they gave asked just 10 questions. 
And it's, it was, have you been abused physically, emotionally, or sexually? Have you been neglected under age 18? That is physical or emotional neglect. So physical neglect might be you didn't have anybody to give you enough food before you went to school, or you didn't have the right clothes to wear to school. Nobody's washing your clothes. You came home to an empty household. Um, emotional neglect, you might have a parent who is very, very ill with cancer or who is on drugs and can't pay attention to you, so you're emotionally neglected. Um, household dysfunctions were on the quiz. Uh, mental illness in a parent, um, that could be bipolar, depression, or any other mental illness. You might have a relative who was incarcerated or a mother who was treated violently. Since this quiz, they've actually had either parent who was treated violently. Um, substance abuse of any kind, and divorce of your parents. So those were the 10 things that they asked questions about. So our objectives today, um, we're talking about what are the adverse childhood experiences, what slide we just saw, and what's the impact of ACEs on physical health in adulthood? And how can we facilitate communication with our patients about their adverse childhood experiences? And why should we even have those conversations? When I brought it up to my provider that I wanted to um, implement this, I, I'm the medical director for Feather River Tribal Health, and I brought it up at a staff meeting that I really wanted to have these quizzes in each exam room and ask patients these questions. And my providers were like, oh, shocked. Do you want us to ask those persons? I mean, it's pretty explicit on there. And, and I said, well, I said, what Dr. Felitti says is that just giving the patient the quiz, having them fill out yes or no, you don't even have to know which ones are yes or no, having them fill it out, tell you their score, and tell you how they think those things are impacting their current health. Very simple, it takes about three minutes in the office. Just that reduces their symptom scores of whatever illness it is they're struggling with by about 30%. In fact, he said that even when he took patients and um, had them fill out the quiz and told them to just think about what the impact was on their current health and put it in a locked box with the promise that a compassionate provider would read it. He still got the 30% decrease in symptom scores. So just the act of doing it was helpful. So that's why we have conversations. So who participated in the Adverse Childhood Experiences study? Since it was done at Kaiser, it was a primarily working population. Uh, about 50% men and women, and the age, 46% uh, of the patients were over age 60, and another almost 40% were in the 40 to 60 range. Uh, mostly white, about 75% white, 11% uh, Hispanic, 7% uh, Asian, and then a mix of the few left. Education of the patients that took this quiz, 75% had either some college, all college, or post-college degree. So this is a fairly educated community. I wonder how this study would have come out if it had been done where I grew up near Los Angeles uh, in the gang neighborhood. So how common are the adverse childhood experiences? Uh, only 36% of patients can remember none of those experiences. And 74% of patients have at least one. 12.5% of the patient have four or more, and this is significant, we'll see later on. It's in some of the illnesses. So they're common. 28% of the patients interviewed reported physical abuse. 21% reported 
reported sexual abuse. So more than one in five of those patients reported sexual abuse. And they cluster. If you have one, you are likely that you might have more than one. And, and you know, it's pretty amazing that actually one in eight people have four or more on their, on their scale. And the amazing thing is that these ACEs have a dose-response uh, curve to disease. So the more ACEs you have, the higher your risk of, of many diseases, and we'll go over some of those. So I don't know if you can read this small print in the back, but, but the adverse childhood experiences are on the bottom tier of this pyramid. The next, pyra- next block up is disrupted neurodevelopment. So we think that these very uh, stressful childhood experiences cause a huge outrage of, of cortisol. So first the child is exposed to the adrenaline that comes in. You know, the flight or fight mechanism is great if you're fighting off a bear or a lion or running away. Uh, but if it's every night and daddy is the alcoholic bear, it becomes very taxing on the child's system. And so then they develop disruption of their social, emotional, and cognitive impairment. We recently had a young mother and her two children staying with us for about nine months. And when the two-year-old first came to stay with us, I truly thought he was autistic. He could not respond um, very well. His language and social development, physical development were very delayed. And it was because he had been in a household with a very abusive father. And so after nine months of staying with us, he really blossomed. He was getting therapy in the home, and and he had a relaxed environment, and his language skills were catching up to a normal three-year-old. He was starting to laugh and play happily. A lot of the negative behaviors were extincting. So what happens is that these children who have social, emotional, and cognitive impairment uh, may adopt high-risk health behaviors. That is, use of alcohol, drugs, um, high-risk sex. And then they get diseases, disability, and social problems from that, and early death. So we see that if you have seven or more, six six or more ACEs, you die 20 years early on average than the people without ACEs. That's a lot, 20 years. I mean, when we see something like that in heart disease or cancer or other things, we do something about it. Uh, but for a long time, we've been kind of quiet about adverse childhood traumas. So um, back to this, this view, I just want to remind you, this, these are the 10 things we're looking at are physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, and household dysfunctions like mental illness, uh, parent treated violently, divorce, incarceration, substance abuse. So I want to tell you about a case history that Dr. Allison Jackson did in a TED Talk. Have any of you heard of Dr. Allison Jackson? If you have a chance to Google her TED Talk, it's very good. Um, She talks about Harry, who at age six weeks of age, the neighborhood watch volunteers heard screaming coming from a drunk parent in, in Harry's house, and he was squalling too. But they looked at themselves and said, oh, you know, our real job is to keep houses from broken into. We're getting broken into. We're not going to do anything about that. So they kind of ignored that incident. At age two, a preschool teacher noted that Harry's mom had a black eye, and perhaps there were some fading bruises on Harry too. But again, no one did anything about it because they were in the job of running a preschool, even though they were mandated reporters and should have done something about it. 
Um, at age five, there was a major event in Harry's life. He came downstairs one morning to find his mother lying with blood uh, on the floor of the kitchen, his father standing angrily above her, and policemen broke down the, the door and took his father off to jail. His mother was taken to the hospital. Harry was put in a squad car and heard a tapping at the window from a foster care person saying, gather your things in a bag, I'm taking you into a foster care situation. And after that, Harry was in 12 different foster homes over his growing up years because he was a difficult child. You can imagine, he was angry, he was confused, he didn't do well at school, he had a huge file at school and a huge file with the foster care system. Nobody wanted to adopt this difficult child. At age 14, Harry was in a foster home where the, the foster father was angry with the foster mother and Harry thought he was going to hurt her. And Harry thought this, this flash of anger from his childhood, seeing his mom go through that situation, just flashed up in Harry and he slugged the foster dad and was immediately put into detention. So we see these kind of Harrys in our practice. We may see them with hypertension and morbid obesity and alcohol use disorder and tobacco use disorder and COPD in their adulthood. So we see the end products of, of the addictions and the poor health behaviors that develop when a child comes through the system like that. So at, by age 42, Harry may have, a, have type 2 diabetes from his obesity and his alcohol use, and he may then get a STEMI, a myocardial infarction, and by age 62, he may have a stroke. Uh, this is what we see, early death. So if you actually look at Harry's, um, let's go back to that, uh, Harry's ACE score, how high do you think his ACE score was? We can total it up. He would have had physical abuse, emotional abuse, uh, pr probably um, some physical neglect when he was in the home with the alcoholic father. Um, definitely um, some emotional neglect. People weren't connecting with him at school or in the foster home. Mental illness in his household, a mother that was treated violently. His parents did split up. He had an incarcerated relative, a father who was using substance. So his score may have been as high as eight or nine. So when we see children that go through these traumas, we oftentimes see behaviors in their adulthood, such as lack of physical activity. They may be afraid even to go outside. They may have social uh, disorders. Um, whoops, what happened? Um, we see smoking. We see alcoholism, uh, drug use, mixed, missed work, absenteeism. And then we see physical and mental health consequences like severe obesity, diabetes, depression, suicide attempts, uh, STDs, heart disease, cancer, stroke, COPD, and broken bones. So let's just look at some of these factors in a little more detail. As far as alcohol goes, the first alcohol use by age 14 was increased two to three times in patients with a high ACE score. ACE is accounted for a 20 to 70% increased likelihood of alcohol use initiated during mid-adolescence. And the total number of ACEs had a very strong graded relationship to initiating alcohol during early adolescence. With drug use, each ACE increased the likelihood of early drug use by two to four times. Each one by two to four times. And compared with people who had no ACEs, people with equal to or more than five ACEs were seven to 10 times more likely to report illicit drug use.
So what about obesity? The two factors of ACEs that were most uh, associated with obesity were physical abuse and verbal abuse. And compared with patients who had no physical abuse, those who reported being often hit or injured had a four kilo higher rate and a 1.4 relative risk odds ratio of having a BMI over 30, so being obese. And then there were sexual risks. Of course, some of these kids grow up in a family where they haven't had anyone pay attention to them. They haven't had mothering or fathering, and so they go out looking for someone to supply that need, and that comes in the form of, of illicit sexual behavior. So ACEs are definitely related to subsequent unintended pregnancies, infections with STDs, and the increased chance that a girl will be having sex by the time she's 15. It's even associated with autoimmune diseases. Uh, compared to people who had no ACEs, if you have two or more ACEs, you're 70% increased, uh, have an increased chance of a T1-mediated autoimmune disease, such as myocarditis, and an 80% increased chance of a T2-mediated, such as myasthenia gravis, and a 100% increased rate of rheumatic disease. But this is the one that's astounded me the most, the heart disease risk. Nine of 10 categories of ACEs were significantly um, increasing the risk of heart disease by 1.3 to 1.7 times. And in fact, when you take the correlation between ACE scores and ischemic heart disease, it's actually mediated more strongly by those psychologic uh, scores, the ACEs, than by the traditional uh, heart disease factors that we always use of of cholesterol, hypertension, what else do we use? Smoking. Anyway, it, it's much more likely that you'll have a heart attack if you have a high ACE score, even without those negative behaviors. What about chronic health diseases? There were higher rates of liver disease, chronic he headaches, cancers, COPD, and diabetes. And of course, mental illness also increased with higher ACE scores. Uh, higher rates of smoking, depression, uh, mental illness, suicidality, and PTSD. So this chart really says it to me, too. Uh, in the chart, we see that one out of 100 people with zero ACEs attempt suicide. But if you have a score of three, it goes up to 10 out of 100 people, 10% will attempt suicide. And if you go up to an ACE score of seven, you have 20 out of 100 people attempting suicide. So the suicides rates go up dramatically. So why should we even talk about ACEs with our patients? Um, my providers were so worried they would trigger off a patient to go home and commit suicide or to be depressed if they discussed these adverse childhood experiences in the office. Um, but what happens is it actually cuts those symptom scores by about 30%. And it opens up the door for a patient to see what's the real question that needs to be asked in the office, which is not what's wrong with you, but what have you suffered? What have you been through? What have you survived? And I tell my patients before I give them the quiz, those things that you've been through, those are what make you compassionate and strong and wise. And I think it was Winston Churchill that said, a diamond is just cold, it's done well under pressure. So I tell my patients, you know, you're a gem, you've been through a lot, and you're a survivor. 
So it's an opportunity for patients to share stories that they want to. They don't always, but sometimes they do. And in fact, I've found that even when patients have a zero ACE score, just the fact of, of giving them the opportunity to take the quiz often brings up stories. I had one patient who was struggling with alcoholism and other drugs and had a very troubled marriage, was verbally abusive, um, had been changing jobs a lot, some definite dysfunctions uh, in his home life. And so I asked him if he'd be willing to take the quiz. He took it. He scored zero. However, he had a significant event that had happened in his grade school years where he had been uh, lost in the snow on a field trip for many hours and they had to search for him with uh, dogs and helicopters. And so here's this young early elementary child who's feeling very uh, alone and left out. And it was such a traumatic event that when I gave him this quiz, he said, well, I don't have any of those things, but this is what I have that I think is affecting me. I also had a patient who scored very low on the ACEs, uh, who was a patient of mine for osteoarthritis, chronic pain, depression, also had fibromyalgia. And his score was low, but he said, there is something in my childhood that's even more than all these things. And that is that I was not, I was not a good kid. I was mean to animals. I shot birds. You know, I was, and I, he said, I just had this horrible guilt from my childhood. So he was able to bring that up spontaneously uh, and felt that that was related to some of his current illnesses. So it's an opening also for spiritual care and an opening to help patients make better health choices so that in coping with this high level of stress from their childhood, they make better choices about how to react to it, how to respond to it. So here's how I do it. I think most of you do have this paper in front of you. Um, so I put it on a clipboard, and I hand it to my patient, and I say, um, would you be interested in taking a quiz that might cut your symptom scores of whatever illness they came to see me about by 30%. Would you be interested? It's just a three-minute quiz. I don't even have to see the paper when you're done. What I'd like you to do is give me a number, if you don't mind, and uh, just that's all you need to do. And I, and I tell them, many of us have uh, adverse childhood experiences. This is, this is a common event, but it often really impacts our health. And the only question that the provider needs to ask is, how do you think these things are affecting your current health? That's the only question you have to ask. And I've had only one patient refuse to take this quiz. I've, I've given out many dozens, probably several hundred now. And the one patient who refused came to me the day that he had shot up heroin. And uh, he was struggling with alcohol use and cannabis. And he did say, I don't want to take the quiz today, but I'll come back and see you. Just the fact that I opened the door to ask those questions made him decide to come back. So whenever you talk about adverse childhood experiences, you also need to talk a little bit about resiliency. And that's really enough uh, to talk about at a whole other lecture. But I do want to mention it, and that is... Um, in the acestohigh.org uh, website, uh, there's a resiliency quiz as well. And I think about Elizabeth Smart. Does anybody know who Elizabeth Smart was? Few people in the audience. This was a 14-year-old girl who was abducted, uh, I think from Salt Lake City, um, somewhere in Utah. 
uh, I think she was a good Mormon girl, and she was stolen from her bedroom in the middle of the night at uh, knife point. Her sister actually thought it was a gun, but later on they decided it was a knife, and taken away, and this crazy man uh, assaulted her, physically raped her, over a period of about nine months before they finally uh, found her and brought her home. But as she came home, her mother told her, they have stolen nine months of your life. They do not deserve a single second more of your life. And this is a, a very resilient message. That is, we can't change the events that happen to us, but we can change our attitude about how we approach them. And this is huge in, in dealing with things. Smart says that she lives by her mom's advice to move on and find happiness. She's making the conscious choice to define herself by who she's become rather than by what happened to her. It's not what happens to us that defines us. It's how we respond to it. And she has been an activist for uh, safety for women and uh, for many good causes. She's a harpist. <laughs> so, so the events happen, but they are transient or temporal. And the meaning of those events can last a lifetime. So I tell my patients that it's like the devil likes to put post-it notes all over us. You know, he sends an assaultive event to us, and he wants to attach meanings to it, like we're not good enough, or uh, we bear some part of the blame for it, or it's our fault, or, you know, various negative messages. But we could decide whose messages we will believe, the devil's or God's. We get to choose what we'll believe. And I love Romans 8.28 that says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So how do we cope from adverse uh, experiences? Well, the, the important thing to do is to substitute negative coping strategies with positive ones. So positive strategies, can you think of some of them? Exercise is one of them. Yeah, healthy lifestyle, getting out in nature. Um, so when I do spiritual care with my patients who have high A scores, I listen to their stories first. I listen to what their needs are, what messages they're attaching to the trauma from their childhood, and I ask them questions. What gives you hope or what gives you meaning? What gives you comfort, strength, peace, love, connection? What helps you when you're stressed? And if they tell me my dog or a favorite television rerun, then I might ask them, you know, who do you turn to when life's difficult? Or uh, was there ever a spiritual uh, connection in your life? And if so, what did that look like for you? Um, I oftentimes give out um, tear bottles, and I'll show you a picture uh, coming up here, with Psalms 56, 8 uh, written down. God saves our tears in his bottle and writes them in his book. He records the wanderings of our life. And I tell them, you know, there is a God in heaven who saw what you've gone through, sees it, knows your pain, and cares about you, who walks with you. And that oftentimes will bring patients to, to tears, and I usually get hugs after that. <laughs> um, I, I use a lot of scripture. Um, we have a women's group that meets on Tuesday nights at 630, so I can invite my patients to it. And uh, we use a book called uh, Treasures Out of Trauma, which is a workbook. If anybody's interested in having one, I, I brought some with me. 
Um, you could probably use other resources too. The author of this book uh, is a Sabbath-keeping Nazarene. <laughs> um, but, but it just is a very logical progression um, through scripture using scripture memorization as therapy. Uh, she spends a lot of time in Psalms 119, which, what, which is what God's word does in us and what we do with God's word. So here's some of the texts that we use in our, in our Tuesday night group. And one of my favorites is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And of course, patients always look at them and say, light momentary affliction? Are you kidding? What I've been through is not light momentary affliction. But what was Paul talking about when he wrote this? He was talking about being beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked. So James 1, 2-4 is another one of our favorites. Consider all joy, my brethren, my sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be made glad also with exceeding joy. Did Jesus Christ suffer? And if we're going to be like him, do you think we might have to suffer? I think so. Yeah, I love the middle section of Romans 8. When I have patients who are struggling with addictions, I really suggest that they start memorizing Romans 8 because it's very powerful for allowing the spirit to take control instead of the flesh. And in the middle, it talks about how we are sons, or in the case of my women's group, daughters of God. We have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but we've been adopted by God. We are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So this is conditional. What's the condition of being fellow heirs with Christ? That we suffer with him so that we can be glorified with him. That is the chosen mechanism for us to become like him and to come draw into his heart. Uh, when we're suffering, we run into his heart. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I like Romans 5, 1 to 5 too. It talks about how we have peace with God. We have this introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. What's the glory of God? The glory of God is his character, his character. And the way he brings us to be like him is to take us through these tribulations with him, not alone. And we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not shame down or disappoint because the love of God is poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit. 
And I love Isaiah 61. So many verses in Isaiah 61. There's actually a study um, about Isaiah 61 by Mary Beth Moore, Beth Moore, who um, I think it's about 10 weeks or so uh, we've done with one of my women's groups. Um, in Isaiah 61, it says, the Lord has anointed us to bring good news to the poor. And are these patients who've been through so much the poor? They really are. Some of them are depressed and physically affected by so many things they've gone through. It says that he has sent us to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Some of these patients are bound by their past. And we need to let them know they don't have to be bound by their past. God gives beauty for ashes, oil of gladness for mourning. So I I think there is a bereavement, a mourning that goes uh, on about these childhood traumas. Uh, God promises that we are the planting of the Lord to glorify him. There's that word again, glorify him. To raise up the devastations of many generations. You know, these are generational patterns of abuse, which we can change by talking about it and by um, change by the way we respond to it. Um, But instead of shame, God promises to give us a double portion of joy. And I particularly like Psalms 34, verses 17 to 20, which says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And that word troubles is the Hebrew sarah, which means tight places, the places where we are oppressed by the devil. Uh, God delivers us out of those troubles. Now, does it mean that we'll never go through anything difficult? No, it doesn't mean we'll never go through any difficulties, but it means that God will never allow our spirit, our soul, to be drawn down that. We, we're on a heavenly journey. Our vision is not transient. It, it's not temporal. It's eternal. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. I love that, the way it refers back to Jesus Christ in that verse. You know, the sufferings even of Jesus Christ were measured. God the Father did not neglect him when he was on the cross. None of his bones were broken like the other thieves on the cross. So I want to talk about a case study. Uh, This is about Tim, who is a 64-year-old white male of mine with type 2 diabetes, one of my primary care patients. He has hypertension, obesity, chronic neck pain with two failed surgeries, uh, major depressive disorder, and insomnia. When he first came to me, he was on high doses of Norco, diazepam, that's a big no-no together. Uh, He was also on Fentermin for his uh, chronic depression, and insulin and statins and aspirin and antidepressants. He is a retired Hells Angel. He's a barbecue chef, a competition uh, fisherman. And what gives him meaning is actually this competition fishing, and he hasn't been able to do that because of his neck pain. You have to go fast over all the waves to be a competition fisherman on Lake Oroville. So his chief complaint was that he had been on a horrible binge over the Thanksgiving holiday. And this really disturbed him because he had gotten his diabetes into really good control. And um, he's like, oh, Doc, I just don't understand. I was doing so well, and I just went, I mean, like I was eating whole pies. And he didn't understand it. So in his ACEs, his primary hit that came up was the loss of three relatives near the holidays. So I asked him, do you remember any losses close to the holidays? He was like, oh, 
wow, of course, man, that's like spot on. Of course, I was, I was grieving. He had had three relatives, an uncle, his father, and one other relative that had died right about that time. So we were able to talk about that and process that. He, he doesn't believe in the same in God the same way I do. He believes there's this big man in the sky, as he calls it. But we, but we talked about the spiritual aspect of, of his grief. So I asked those spiritual questions to my patients. Do you have any spiritual support system? Has that ever been a part of your life? Uh, were you ever part of a spiritual community? How was that for you? Because some people have had very negative uh, experiences. Um, do you pray? Does that help you? Would you like me to pray with you now? And it's rare that somebody refuses uh, to have prayer. So here's another case study. This is a 31-year-old primip who was admitted at 38 weeks of gestation with headache and blood pressure of 169 over 110 to a Kaiser facility where I did my residency. There was no proteinuria. She was treated with bed rest and left lateral position and the uh, expeditious delivery, and the mother and the baby did very well. But notable in her past medical history, she had gained 70 pounds during that pregnancy. She had a family history with a father who had hypertension and an MI, actually had four MIs by the time he was 69 and died from his fourth one, and a paternal grandmother with type 2 diabetes and a mother who had depression. So if you did an ACE history, on K, you would find out that her parents were divorced before she was four. That's one hit. She had childhood sexual abuse. She had an attempted gang rape when she was about six. An alcoholic father who attempted suicide when she was 11. An attempted rape at age 17 while she was driving home from her SAT class. A mother who had depression and eating disorder and committed suicide the day before the patient's 18th birthday. The patient's A score was at least four. Uh, one clinical possi possible explanation for the patient's hypertension with no proteinuria was that the patient was experiencing not preeclampsia, but a fear of re-traumatization with the delivery. So what happened to this patient? After she delivered her baby, she decided to lose the 70 pounds and began jogging to diet center every day. And on her way, jogging to diet center, uh, a few guys whistled at her from a truck, and she dissolved into tears. It hit her immediately that there was a connection between the extra weight, which is a protection, perceived protection from assault, from being, having unwanted attention, and also that being on an 1,100-calorie diet-centered diet uh, did not give her the carbs to suppress the negative emotions. So she wasn't pushing down those old memories. So she immediately went into group and private counseling. She read Door of Hope by Jan Frank, Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey, Freeing Your Mind from Memories that Bind by Fred and Florence Latour, and Healing for Damaged Emotions by David Siemens. She began having dreams at night that brought up some of the memories that she had suppressed from childhood, talk with her cousins, confirm that, continue counseling. When her baby was about nine months old and was weaned, she uh, put him in the care of her husband and, and his mom and went away for the, to the beach for three days and stormed up and down the beach, angry with God for what she perceived as, as unfair uh, assaults from childhood. But during that time, 
with all the books. She concentrated on the Bible text. Bible therapy. It's very, very healing. She was journaling, prayer, scripture memorization, exercise, healthy evening, eating, and chose to base her identity not on the things that happened to her, but on the person God says that she is. So um, this is what we do in our women's groups. This is exactly what we do. And when we do use this manual, Treasures Out of Trauma by Arlene Hendricks, um, but you could probably use other books. I think you could probably use uh, Ministry of Healing. It would probably work very well. So I love the idea of the tear bottles with my patients. God saves our tears in his bottle, writes them in his book. He records our wanderings. And I especially like this one, Psalms 27.5. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He'll lift me up on a rock. So I, I want to tell you, Kay was me. And I have absolutely no memories of pain for any of those negative events that happened in my childhood. And most psychologists or psychiatrists will tell you that was disassociation. But what God has told me is that I put you to sleep just like I did for Adam when I took the rib out. I put you up in my tabernacle in the secret place of his tent. You know, he hid me. And it was interesting because I had some right lower pain, quadrant pain for some years off and on and went to a couple doctors and, and uh, when I had a gallbladder out, they noticed some adhesions down there. I'd never had a pelvic infection. But when I had a hysterectomy at age 60, the doctor came to me and said, your right tube and ovary were so scarred to your uterus that I had to remove them together. And it was from the time that I was pushed down by the group of boys with a knee in my groin, just terrible scarring, but I had no memory of that pain, none. You know, God is amazing. He is very, very good to us. And these experiences from my childhood have left me more compassionate to my patients, more able to empathize with them. It's been a good thing. There was a time when I would have extincted all those things, but not anymore. God says that we are his children. We are Christ's friend. We're bought with a price. We belong to God. We're redeemed and forgiven of all our sins. We're complete in Christ, precious in his sight. We're his workmanship created in Christ. We've been established, anointed, sealed by God. We've not been given a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. We're born of God, and the evil one cannot touch us. He might be able to do things to our transient, temporal, outside body, but he can't touch our soul. Can't touch that vibrant relationship with God. Can't touch our eternal destiny. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. Isaiah 43, 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk in the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame kindle you. So I have some references here, and I'd be happy to send slides to anybody who wants to leave me an email address. Um, any questions? I'll take around a mic. If, yeah. Oh, and, and, and books, if anybody wants books. They actually, if you order them on Amazon, they're $20 a piece, but I can get them for $5 a piece from the author. So if anybody wants to leave a donation for books, I, that's fine. If you don't have cash with you and want to just take a book, that's fine too. 
any questions. Uh, I'm sorry, we, we came late. I didn't I, I hear, did you mention that you have a support group or something? That yes, we run a group on Tuesday nights at our church, which we, right now we only have six ladies coming, um, myself and one other Adventist, and the other four are from various uh, churches in town. Um, so it's an 18-week course if we go through the lessons from the book. Um, but we've now continued into other Bible topics. So, well, it, we might just go into Daniel and Revelation one of these days. So. That's wonderful. And how did, how did you initially make contact with these patients that came um, through? Or? I first contacted with the author, working with her on an organic farm, and got to know her, got to know about her book, and uh, just we just started, uh, when, I w when I would meet patients in my office, I was giving out a lot of her books, and so she had to reprint a new batch. And uh, then we decided, hey, let's just meet and, and talk with people. And it's been an amazing experience. The, the women send me texts during the week and say, oh, man, I've just learned so much because we're teaching them to depend on God's identity of them and not what the devil wants to post it note all over them. Praise the Lord. And thank you so much for you know, sharing your story and being vulnerable. That's beautiful how the Lord well, has sustained you, know, you. It's interesting. My, my daughter said, Mom, when you give this talk, you have to tell your story. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't <laughs> think so. But I went to a women's uh, retreat a couple weekends ago. And I'm like, over and over and over mm. again, you know, there was um, references to telling our stories. And one mm. of the talks was about telling our stories to God's glory. And so um, I was getting ready for church that morning, and the Lord said, I want you to tell their story. Mm. And, and I said, I don't know, Lord, I don't know about that. And he said, I gave you this story. I want you to tell it just like Joseph's story and Esther's story and Daniel's story. I want you to tell your story. And that's true for every one of us. Amen. Thank you. Question back there. Um, Carrie, can you take the mic back? After you've told your story, they've told their story. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say it like this. What happens next? And is it healing through the word of God that does heal? Oh, yes. Or does it, is it an ongoing kind of, we've got to stay together, we've got to keep this thing going? We, we intend to meet for 18 weeks when we start a group. Mm -hmm. And we actually have a group that I'm part of called Hearts Being Healed, where mm -hmm. we do a retreat twice a year in our area. We do one in Portola in September mm -hmm. and one in Chico in March. Mm -hmm. And we bring in women from all different uh, walks of life with different mm -hmm. stories. They tell their mm -hmm. story with a definite scriptural emphasis about how God has written his story in mm -hmm. them, mm -hmm. and uh, our emphasis is on using the Word of God for healing. Yeah, that yeah. is our primary. And, and if women want to continue meeting after that mm -hmm. 18 weeks, mm -hmm. we're open to that. But you find that there is definitely healing, I'd say, has started to take place. Oh, sure, And if sure. they continue to yeah. view themselves differently, I like that concept of what is, it's happened. Yes. But what can you do about it? And telling your story. Sometimes we play down people don't talk about that let's move on yes but i think you do have to but i like that i just appreciate what you've shared and, and what no one seen. has to talk in the groups you know, yeah it's totally not... voluntary. i have some women who might come for uh, nine weeks before they say a word mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's not a forced mm -hmm. no no it's totally voluntary mm -hmm. and we we just go we we memorize scripture we usually mm -hmm. uh, choose a verse to memorize we mm -hmm. write it on the board mm -hmm. and we talk about different memorization mm -hmm. techniques and mm -hmm. it's very powerful sounds like it congratulations any more questions
And you think I saw in your bio that you work at an Indian health I do. I work at Feather River Tribal Health. Okay. And we've just built a brand new lifestyle center. So I'm hoping that my boss will get a new uh, medical director and let me direct the lifestyle center. Ah, interesting. So I'm curious. Um, I also work in an a Indian health uh, center part-time. And the population that we serve has a very high prevalence of adverse childhood events. I'm curious how you integrate the spiritual part of the treatment while you're in a uh, facility like that where, you know, we have federal regulations and all that stuff we have to kind of be careful about. We do so have how to do be you, careful. How do you do that? I talk about the creator. Most Native Americans are very open to the idea of the creator. Mm -hmm. And I ask them what their view of God is or what their view of the creator is. Many of them um, talk about the grandfather. They have a a, a grandfather in, in the sky that's taking care of them. So I start with their uh, cultural view of God. And m many of my patients actually have Christian roots. I've only had um, one, well, maybe two patients in my 11 years working there who have complained about spiritual care. And actually one of them said, I still want her as my doctor, but I don't want her to ask any spiritual questions. And later on, I happened to go to a funeral at his church, which is one of the churches that is a non-denominational, um, they don't even really believe, I think, in the Trinity. Or, um, but but he, later on, he started inviting me to events at, at his church. <laughs> and, I, and the other person who complained was a psychopath. And I, I actually had one um, young woman who said she was a pagan, and I asked her what that meant to her. Her mother was in the room, and um, I was going through the eight natural remedies with her. And the last one just says trust. It doesn't specify. So I, I leave that open so I can talk more depending on their mm -hmm. bent. And um, I said, you know, people who have trust in a good power do better. And that was the word I used, trust in good power. And the mother wrote a complaint to administration saying I had said Jesus. She heard Jesus out of that. Mm. And I, I, I know that the devil's present in some of those visits as well as the Lord. So, well, I told my boss, yeah. I didn't say, Jesus, I said a good <laughs> higher power. <laughs> but I start where they're at. Yeah. Okay. We were late, sorry. Um, I really appreciated your talk. Thanks for sharing your testimony. Sure. Sure. And I had, um, I saw this ACE score or mm -hmm. questionnaire. Mm -hmm. um, how, do you, how do you use this tool? So, so the way I in use it, I put it on a clipboard, okay. and I tell the patient that if you'd like to take this little quiz, it has a potential of cutting your symptom scores by about 30%. Mm. You don't even need to show it to me. If you want, you can give me your number, your total number of yeses out of 10. And, um, and then the only question I ask is, how do you think these events from your childhood are affecting your current health? That's the only question I have to ask. And it just opens the door for questions and for a transition into spiritual care, for them to share stories. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't started screening everyone yet, but I think it would be a great idea. I screen all my chronic pain patients, all my fibromyalgia patients, all my depression patients, all my anxiety patients. So I'll probably get to the point where I screen everybody. I should be screening all my hypertensive patients for sure. So all my diabetics, you know, because this cortisol, you know, the, the flight or fight gone, gone wrong 
that ends up with a high cortisol response and PTSD is, is a part of so many illnesses, as, as we saw in the lecture. So, yeah. Anybody else? Questions? Yeah, I just wanted to say thanks. Um, I think this is something that's very overlooked in healthcare today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I work at Eden Valley, you know, Lifestyle Center, Natural Wellness Center. Uh, we see a lot of cancer at Eden Valley. Uh, last year, I think it was, uh, we kept some very loose numbers, but in you know, a very small demographic, obviously, but we, we looked at all of our uh, cancer patients. Uh, and we have uh, emotional and spiritual component to our program as well. And we found that 100% over, I think it was a six-month period, 100% of our cancer patient, regardless of age and sex, 100% had some sort of physical, emotional, or sexual abuse or trauma. Right. It's, it's incredibly prevalent. Very much so. Thank you. This talk was excellent. So I'm in pediatrics where the trauma occurs. Do you have any resources that you recommend specifically for intervening earlier before they make it to your clinic with the emotional baggage from childhood? There are some, and I could probably send you some email uh, resources. I think the most important factor is having an attentive, understanding adult who draws near right after the trauma. So if you have a supportive milieu to process the trauma in, that's huge. One other question. Um, is this the sort of thing that you perhaps would start in a church group, or would you have to be a medical professional to, say, even initiate this kind of program? Oh, I don't think you'd need to be a medical professional at all. The, this Treasures Out of Trauma uh, book that's on Amazon also comes with videos. You can just play the video and then uh, discuss that week's mm -hmm. lesson. Mm -hmm. I, I think it could be easily run in a church. Okay. Thank you. Real quick, could you just go through the first, like, 12 slides that have all the statistics about why it's important health? Because I think a lot of people came in after lunch sure. when sure. you had already gone through that. Sure. We'll, we'll back up here. Sure. Uh-huh. I work with refugees, and we've been working with Andrews University, their social uh, services department, uh -huh. and also ASAP. And they've got a tremendous program that they're using with the children and the mothers in the refugee camps overseas. And now they realize that we have some of those same refugees, so they're starting to come up and, and uh, help us with ours in our area. But I appreciate this because this has now given me a medical model. I'm a nurse, but um, public health. Uh, now I've got another model to, to work in, that, and they're using the eight laws of health uh, in mm -hmm because God has set up ways of healing in the exactly. brain healing that's just fantastic. Exactly. Thank you. A lot of hope here. So, so this lecture was based on the Kaiser study on adverse childhood experiences that was done by Dr. Vincent Felitti, F-E-L-I-T-T-I, -T -T uh, from 1995 to 1997 and was published in 1998 about the relationship of childhood abuse and household dysfunction to many of the leading causes of death in adults. It was conducted at Kaiser Hospital from 1995 to 97 on 17,300 patients. And Bob Onda from the CDC participated with him. So the 10 uh, factors are abuse, either physical, emotionally, or sexual, uh, neglect, physical or emotional neglect, and household dysfunctions like mental illness, 
a parent being treated violently, a divorce, an incarcerated relative, or substance abuse. So when they did the initial study, it was 75% people who had been partially or fully college educated and 75% white people. If they had done this in my neighborhood growing up in the gangs of Los Angeles, I think these numbers would have been much higher. So uh, we found out that 64% of adults have at least one ACE score and 12.5% of adults have four or more. So 28% of people have been uh, physically abused, 21% have been sexually abused. And uh, it's, it's dramatic. There's a dose-response curve uh, for the number of ACEs to the amount of adult disease. So the adult uh, has the effects coming from first the adverse childhood experiences, then the disrupted neurodevelopment, lots of high cortisol levels, PTSD, social, emotional, and cognitive impairment, and the adoption of health risk behaviors. But we know that even if you don't adopt negative health risk behaviors, you still have a higher risk of immune disease and cancer and diabetes and heart disease just having been through those traumas in childhood. And life expectancy, if you have six or more ACEs, is cut by 20 years, from 80 down to 60. So it tends to uh, show up in uh, adulthood as behaviors like lack of physical activity, smoking, alcoholism, drug use, and missed work, and then physical and mental health impacts such as severe obesity, diabetes, depression, suicide attempts, STDs, heart disease, cancer, stroke, COPD, broken bones, immune disorders. And the heart one, that's huge. It's a bigger risk factor to have ACEs than it is to be smoking with hypertension and hyperlipidemia. So it, it impacts the first use of alcohol much earlier when children who have had high ACE scores, drug use, uh, the risk of each ACE score increased the likelihood of early drug use by two to four times. Um, obesity, uh, the, the people who had been physically and verbally abused had a four kilo higher weight and 1.4 times relative risk of having a BMI over 30, which is obesity. So higher uh, sexual risky behavior and autoimmune diseases. Thank you so much. That's the end of our session. You have a 10 right. minute break and the All next right. session will be And I'm happy to answer questions. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.